Startups, you don't need to settle for a cumbersome banking experience to protect your money. Mercury offers banking and credit cards with effortless experience, giving ambitious companies greater precision, control, and focus without compromising security. Open smarter checking and savings accounts, control spend, optimize cash flow, and close the books in record time. Visit mercury.com to join more than 100,000 startups that trust Mercury with their finances and to help them perform at their highest level. This is Recode Media, Peter Kafka. That is me, and it's not the end of the year, but it's almost the end of the year. When it's the end of the year, I talk to Lucas Shaw from Bloomberg so we can talk about what happened in 2022 in media and what might happen in 2023. And Normally, we have sort of a depressing conversation about the state of the world, but we're going to try to be a little bit upbeat. Lucas, let's let's start right here. I'm going to go see Avatar. I call it Avatar 2, but that's not the name of the movie. It's called... What is it called? Avatar The Way of Water. Way of Water. Let's call it Avatar 2. I'm going to see it tonight. You have seen it. By the time this podcast comes out, everyone can see it. Will we collectively like this movie? I think most people will. Yeah. Yeah. It's a very... I mean, it's... Cla- Look, Jim Cameron knows how to make a visually sumptuous movie that has a good story. It's like, if you take a... Not that he would hate it being compared to a Marvel movie, but it looks considerably better than a Marvel movie, and it has real emotional stakes, um, while still being a big old popcorn movie. I never saw the original one, in large part because I had kids around the time it first came out, and there was no way I was going to spend... my, my rare non-kid time at a three-hour movie. My kids haven't seen the movie. There's a generation of people who, who haven't seen Avatar. Is it, is it important that this is the sequel to a big deal movie that came out in 2010-ish, 2009? As a viewer, I don't think it will matter because I hadn't seen it since I saw the original one in theaters and remembered almost nothing other than like the word Navi, which mm-hmm. is the word for the blue people in it. And that it was in a lot of ways an allegory for climate change and just like kind of the horrible, uh, horrible nature of um, of capitalism and globalization. But as it pertains to the business, I mean, it's pretty remarkable that a movie that they waited this long to make a sequel to something that wasn't based on like a like you know they made a Superman movie in 1978 or whatever it was, and they could make another one later because Superman was was still cool and still in culture that this had no real precedent other than that movie, and it's going to be probably the biggest movie of the year or maybe second to Top Gun. So we're starting micro and we're getting bigger in scope with these questions. So this this was a Fox movie, and one of the reasons it took forever was that I think Rupert Murdoch and James Cameron had a deal where James Cameron could tell Rupert Murdoch, I'll make this movie when I'm good and ready, and Rupert Murdoch would say, yes, that's good. Now it's a Disney movie. What is, what's at stake here for Disney? I, um, I saw a, a quote from James Cameron saying he'd need to gross $2 billion for this thing to be financially successful. Um, Disney has a lot of things going. Do they desperately need this movie to be a giant hit, or is it okay if it's a medium-sized hit? Desperately need, no, because there isn't a single movie that Disney could release that would meaningfully change the fortune of that company. Uh, especially not one, especially one that's not part of some like larger grand plan like Marvel or Star Wars. But look, they bought a lot of the assets from Rupert Murdoch from Fox a few years ago for tens of billions of dollars. You could argue that the TV things that they've bought, like FX, have bolstered Hulu, and the TV studio has helped Disney Plus and all these things. The movie studio that they that they acquired has been a disaster ever since they bought it. Pretty much everything that was already in the pipeline hasn't worked. 
And this is the one shining star of that that could help justify it. And we're going to keep widening the aperture of this line of questioning. This year, we're not... we're going to call this a post-pandemic year. People can argue, and there's plenty of people I know who are getting COVID right now. Um, but it seems like most people have returned to pre-pandemic behaviors, but not going to the movies. Uh, ticket sales are down 30% from 2019. That was a year when the pandemic did not exist. And we've been talking about this for several years. Like, is the movie business been fundamentally changed by the pandemic and or something else? There are other examples of behaviors that have seemed to go on right back to pre-pandemic behavior uh, concerts. We're going to talk about that in a bit. Bad Bunny just announced yesterday, I think, that his tour grossed like $430 million this year, the single biggest tour in the history of the music business for a sing- single year. There we go. Bad Bunny, to many of my listeners, is a music act. Uh, it's a performer because that's one of those big gaps where like enormously popular and then a lot of people I know have no idea who what a Bad Bunny is. But so people are going out. They're going to concerts. They're going to things where they could conceivably get COVID. They're not going to movies at the same rate they were before. What gives? Well, part of it is an acceleration of something that was already happening. I mean, you look over the long term, um, and there are a lot of people who've done smart writing on this, you know, movie attendance in this country, like peaked around World War II, I want to say, and has been declining ever since you get more opportunities to do things at home. First, it's broadcast TV, then it's cable TV, then you have video games, you have streaming, you have all these, you know, TikTok, YouTube, etc. And so attendance has been in decline for a very long time. Then the pandemic happens, and to your point, it makes people a little bit uh, scared about going into these large communal indoor spaces. The movie experience is something that can be replicated at home with you know big TVs and so much available. And then, and to that end, with with so much available, you had a lot of companies start dropping their movies either at home instead of in theaters, at home the same time, or at home very quickly afterwards. And so I think it trained a lot of people to say, hey, I don't need to go unless this is a big event. I'm just going to stay home. And we're still figuring out what categories or genres fit into that, right? Like a movie like Avatar, a movie like Top Gun, there are going to be a handful of these movies every year that become cultural phenomena and are also so such spectacles that people feel like they need to go to the theater and see. Horror on a smaller scale is still something where people seem to really like going to a theater to experience that comedy, which you'd think like horror would be preferable in a communal setting, has not fit into that bucket. No comedies are working in the theaters. And then the big question mark I think I and a lot of people have is around animation, because animation has historically been one of those genres that feel you go to the theater as a family. It's a good outing. It's a chance to get out of the house. But there were a lot of animated movies that were put at home during the pandemic, Um, And by and large, animated movies have done far worse this year at the box office than they have in previous years. This sounds like an article I wrote uh, earlier this year saying, you know, the the age of of, of movie going is kind of permanently done, um, except for a handful of big budget spectacles. People in Hollywood will insist that this is still a blip, that that there's fewer movies out right now because there's been production issues, in part because of COVID, that this will all kind of right itself in 2023 or some future time, that there's an experience of going to the movies you can't replicate at home, etc. People like you and me like going to see movies and, and, and I think romantically like think that's an important part of culture. Um any reason to believe that that movies are gonna are going to fix them? The movie going experience is gonna resolve itself, and and those numbers will tick up again. The 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 best and at this point only argument that 
most of those people have is that the supply of new product is still diminished. So I think the number of movies this year um, or releases is is down about as much as the the ticket sales. Um, and you just have these fallow periods. You know, Black Panther: Wakanda Forever comes out in early to mid November, and there's almost nothing of scale that comes out between that and Avatar in mid-December. This is usually a pretty fertile movie-going period. There wasn't that Thanksgiving weekend movie that people were excited about. It could have been Knives Out, or the sequel, Glass Onion. Uh, Netflix obviously decided to, to mostly make that a streaming movie. So if you look ahead at the schedule for next year, it's much stronger. And you have all these companies, whether it's David Zaslav, the CEO of Warner Brothers Discovery, um, or Jeff Schell, the head of NBC Universal, uh, the certainly Paramount run by Bob Backish, all these companies saying that they believe in putting movies in theaters and are going to invest in that and putting dropping movies online was more of a, you know, a pandemic necessity. But it's hard to say whether the customer is going to respond in that way. I do think more product will help, but that could also lead to a lot of movies that fail um, and and kind of a contraction in the number of titles that get released all over again. So next year is a pretty good asset test, right? Well, in, in theory, if we don't have a calamity. I mean, they said that about 2022 is the thing, mm -hmm. and that's why I'm a little cautious. But yes, I think next year we're back to almost like full schedule, full everything. And if it's not back or close to back next year, then you're going to have a lot of people freaked out. Uh, I mentioned music, uh, something I don't cover a lot. You do. Um, let's talk about the, the concert business. We've been saying, saying the concert business has been roaring. Um, it's supposed to be roaring next year, even though the economy is headed into recession, definitely in Europe, is already there. Um, people are still shelling out tons of money to go see live performers. Um, as all of us recall, there was a, a Taylor Swift story a few weeks ago. I angered my editor by telling that editor that that really wasn't much of a story, that this was a supply-demand thing. Explain to all of us what happened with Taylor Swift and more important, what's what's going to happen in the future? There was a lot of hot takes about how Ticketmaster is really in trouble now because Taylor Swift is mad at them and she's got a lot of fans. Um, I don't believe that'll change, but you, you tell me. Yeah, so Taylor Swift, when she goes on tour, is the biggest touring artist in the world. You know, I mentioned earlier Bad Bunny's got the record for a single year, but I think when Taylor Swift goes on tour next year, if she does enough shows, she could certainly break it. She had the biggest tour in the world, I think, a couple of years ago, or la not a couple, but last time she went on tour. She decides to release tickets for her new tour, which will be next year. It'll be in all the biggest stadiums across the United States. Ticketmaster, uh, which is owned by uh, Live Nation, the biggest concert promoter, is selling the tickets. Uh, this guy, Louis Messina, who's affiliated with AEG, which is the only real co competitor of size that Live Nation has in the promotion business, is promoting it. So important to note, Live Nation was not actually the promoter. Explain what a promoter does in the concert So business. the promoter, the way the concert business works is you have like an, an agent who sort of routes the tour and decides what venues the artist should play in consultation with the, with the promoter and the artist. The promoter makes deals with venue has deals with venues with with ticket sellers and sort of handles all of the nuts and like manages all the, the tour they they stage the tour basically yeah. and then the, the the artist and their manager can either be very involved in the case of someone like taylor swift she's gonna be very involved because she's a phenomenal business person and in other cases they'll just be hands off and let the promoter do all the hard work concert promotion is largely a money losing business because when you buy a ticket, it just passes through the artist. The promoter 
uh, may take small pieces here and there, but the vast majority of the sale goes to the artist. Same deal with ticket sales, like ticket those ticket brokers, like a Ticketmaster, mostly makes money from the fee that you pay, which it splits with the venue. So the lion's share of the money for a tour goes to the artist, but that's also because the artist is putting forward the cost, right? The promoter will give people money to help put on the tour, but it's ultimately the artist that's going to decide uh, how to spend it. And in this case, you know, she she decides to sell all of the tickets to her show on the same day. And Ticketmaster was selling the majority of the tickets, I think 47 to 52 dates. And a lot of people who had tried to buy tickets either couldn't get tickets uh, or when they did get in to get tickets, it crashed or they got delayed or they ended up getting crappy tickets. It was just a miserable experience. And she'd spent much of the year telling her fans, hey, these tickets are going to be available. They're going to be hard to get. If you want to improve your chances, do the following things. Buy some of my other stuff. Buy X, Y, or Z from me because Live Nation has a program, or Ticketmaster, excuse me, has a program called Verified Fan, which is an effort to neuter scalpers by identifying people that it thinks when they buy the tickets will be likely to go instead of reselling it. So she was telling her fans, I know these are going to be hard to get. I want to make it easier for you, even though they're going to cost a lot of money. I can't guarantee it. But if you you do if you jump through these hoops, you're 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 not you're not going to be guaranteed a ticket, but your chances will improve. And so you had a lot of fans with the expectation that if they got into this program and bought the things that she thought that she said they should buy, that they were going to be able to get tickets. And there were a lot of those fans who did not get tickets, and a lot of those fans who did get tickets but had to pay exorbitant amounts of money because of uh, kind of pricing that that changes based on what it thinks you're willing to pay. And there was a perception, although it's it, Ticketmaster says it didn't happen, that a lot of like bots and scalpers got in to to get tickets instead. Um, so broke, it didn't work. Um, there were two things that went right. Ticketmaster systems didn't work very well. But the bigger issue to me, and I think to you, was that there's more people who wanted to buy Taylor Swift tickets than could be available. There were a raft of stories, like I mentioned, about Ticketmaster's in trouble. Politicians are saying something should be done. This is a uh, this is a failure of antitrust. I pointed out to you that there's these stories recur every couple of years. There's one from 2008 or 20 something around then about Hannah Montana, who's now called Miley Cyrus, when people couldn't buy her tickets. Is there any reason to believe that government is going to intercede and enforce? some change in the way concert tickets are sold. It's unlikely. I mean, look, I'll admit, I, like you, had the same reaction when this story first came up, which was, okay, we're going through this again, where people are mad because they can't get tickets and they yell at Live Nation and Ticketmaster. But Taylor Swift fans are particularly kind of insistent. And Taylor Swift herself has managed to be at the center of almost every major business conflict in the music business. The government has looked into Live Nation before, when initially Live Nation and Ticketmaster came together, there were concerns about it. That's the biggest venue business merging with the biggest, really the dominant ticket seller. The biggest promoter merging with the biggest ticket seller. It seems sort of like a natural conflict of interest. You could argue there are people who already hate Ticketmaster because they think it's a monopoly. There are people who don't like Live Nation because they think it's a monopoly. Putting those two together seems like it could be bad for consumers. But the the deal was approved. It has since there have since been DOJ investigations into it. There's a fresh one happening right now. I think where anything to come of it, it's most likely through that where they just continue to impose certain conditions and restrictions on how Live Nation operates. The likelihood of Congress 
passing anything, especially as we are about to enter a divided Congress, seems close to zero. I agree. I just wanted to get that out there. Um, yeah, the, the most recent version of this was people, and it was a pretty niche complaint, but it was people complaining about not being able to get Hamilton tickets. And Bruce Springsteen. Uh, a few years or ago. Pe- and, and people got very mad because the Bruce Springsteen tickets were very expensive. And Bruce has since given an interview in which she basically said, look, I've tried to charge reasonable prices my whole life. All the people I know are selling tickets for more than I am. And by the way, I'm as if not more popular than them. So pay up. We'll be right back with Lucas Shaw, but first, a word from a sponsor. Startups, you don't need to settle for a cumbersome banking experience to protect your money. Mercury offers banking and credit cards with effortless experience, giving ambitious companies greater precision, control, and focus without compromising security. Open smarter checking and savings accounts, control spend, optimize cash flow, and close the books in record time. Visit Mercury.com to join more than 100,000 startups that trust Mercury with their finances and to help them perform at their highest level. I want to talk about streaming. You've teased Bob Iger, but I don't want to talk about Bob Iger right now. I think we've talked about him a lot. I do want to talk about the other favorite topic in in streaming, which is HBO Max and what's going to become of it and its owners at Warner Brothers Discovery. We had a story this summer about HBO Max taking down shows and movies, most of which people hadn't heard of or hadn't watched a lot of, but they they still existed, and that was surprising. We just went through another round of it this week. Um, They're taking off Westworld, a high-profile, big-budget series that had already concluded, but they're saying we're taking it off the service. They also canceled something called Minx, which I didn't see the first season of, but HBO Max apparently. Okay. um, HBO Max apparently liked it because they had made a second season, basically. And they said, no, we're not going to even show you that. This summer when that happened, we heard two different arguments from Warner Brothers Discovery about why they were doing this. One was... If we cancel some of this stuff now, we can basically get write-offs that will help us with our accounting. We can do this because we've just merged Warner Brothers and Discovery. And the other argument was these things are actually costly to have on streaming, believe it or not, because in some cases there's still payments that are made um, depending on, on who actually owns the show. What's happening this time around with these cancellations? It's a mix. So I think with the shows that were, some of the shows that were ongoing, like a, a minx or a, a, a love life. Um, it, it, it just feels like normal programming decisions where these were, sh- these were shows that were sort of bubble shows. You know, they, they have a little bit of an audience and they have some critical acclaim, but they're not a big hit. And HBO historically has renewed those shows for at least a little bit because it wants to uh, be friendly to creators and it, you know, maybe they get nominated for some awards but in this moment now of sort of greater financial scrutiny, they are saying this is not going to be worth our investment. We need to save money. Warner Brothers Discovery, our parent company, has lots of debt. Let's stick to the hits. In terms of the shows getting scraped, Westworld probably being the most prominent example, I think also the Never is this Joss Whedon show. One of the arguments that I've I've at least read is that they will be licensed to another streaming service um that mm-hmm. could be the free ad supported service that david zaslav yep. plans to build within warner brothers discovery it could also of course be to to license it out that strikes people as a little bit strange just because in the history of hbo it sort of always had all of its it's for the most part always kept its programming in the service you go to hbo knowing that it means quality and also anything they've ever aired is available to you 
I could go either way on this one. I, I both understand the logic behind trying to, trying to build up this advertising-supported service. At the same time, these moves continue to feed this perception that HBO under Warner Brothers Discovery is a less friendly place or a less hospitable place for creators than it has been historically. Yeah, the, the version I've, I've heard from HBO people is this is about restructuring and cost savings and we can somehow, this is good for our books if we can take this off now. And the idea that they're going to license it to an ad-supported service, whether that's their own service or a Roku or a Tubi, is just a bonus thing. It's not, it's more about just saying there's these shows, we may as well get something out of this. But they're, it's more about saving, it's more about accounting than it is trying to build up another service. And then again, the bigger picture here, and, and I've had media savvy friends ask me this as well, which is how come in a fully digital age where there really should be almost no cost to having stuff that's already been made, why isn't this stuff all available? Why why do we have to... There's two versions of it. One, why do we have to hunt and peck to find this stuff on different services? Because on music, you can basically get everything you want if you go to Spotify or Apple in the same catalog. It's basically all of, all of recorded music is there for the most part. That doesn't exist in movies. But even if you believe that, all right, we, we, we accept that some shows are on HBO and some shows are on Netflix, why is the overall catalog of stuff shrinking in any way? Um, why isn't this all available with a credit card and a click of a button? Well, a lot of it is if you choose to rent it or buy it via an Amazon or Apple. So it's still, it's, this mm -hmm. stuff is still out there. And I think it's important to remember historically that it was always hard to find a lot of things. It's much easier. We have more access to more TV and film than we've ever had before. If you are an old person like me who remembers a time before Blockbuster when even renting a movie, when you had to rent a VCR in addition to renting a, a movie, um, yeah, this is an amazing complaint to have. You can't get all this stuff with a button. But we are in modern times. You should be able to get all this stuff digitally delivered. Yeah, I think you can get a lot of it via the stores for renting and buying. The other thing is that there is a belief uh, among some services, I would say, that they would like to declutter and limit the library so that the act of browsing and searching is not as uh, as traumatizing. I mostly think that's bullshit just because... That's the dumbest argument in the world. You're in charge of the service. You can decide how you want to display stuff. But it's part of the defense for these moves, which are largely cost-cutting and they don't want to seem cheap. There are all sorts of, you know, just the way that payments work in the entertainment business with contracts with union and with things called residuals where you get paid anytime people watch something, you know, on a streaming service or rent it or buy it via Apple. There are like small checks that people will collect. Like I imagine, again, I, I'd need to do a little more reporting ar around it. But I imagine with a show like Westworld, you know, anytime someone watches that show after it's over on HBO Max, longer term, there's some amount of money that someone like a someone involved in that show, whether it's the creators, Jonah Nolan and Lisa Joy, whether it's some of the, the talent in it, like Dandy Newton, they get residuals. And uh, if if the company can avoid paying that by basically wiping it off the face of the earth, they will. You and I both saw Reed Hastings speak at the Dealbook conference in New York uh, a couple weeks ago. His big takeaway there was things are, are going well again in Netflix. He conceded that he had screwed up by not bringing advertising to the service earlier. He said that he'd been sort of pushed into it by his CFO, but he now realizes he was wrong to not have done it. And then he said everything else is pretty much going to be the way it has been. Um, there had been reporting. You and I both heard that 
that Netflix was interested in live sports. He says, we're not, we're not chasing after that. And really the only thing that was different about his appearance and beyond the big ad move, which is a big one, was he saying he was emphasizing games, games, games. Do you believe that Netflix is done making major pivots or if they show up next year and say, actually, we are doing live sports or we are doing another thing we've always said we would never do? Are you waiting for another shoe to drop at Netflix or do you think they think they've they've righted the ship? They believe that they have righted the ship in the short term because they remain convinced in streaming as a business model and the growth of streaming and that all these other companies that have legacy cable networks that are in decline will suffer more than they have and they will continue to kind of execute and find ways to grow and become more profitable not less but I, there are, there will almost certainly be more changes in the business because if you listen to Reed's framing at that event he sort of trotted out this new line where it is like the company's two priorities were customer satisfaction and operating profit because the company has been seen as fairly dogmatic over its over its history, right? It was never going to do advertising. It was never going to crack down on password sharing. Now, they would harp and say that they never used the word never, but they were pretty insistent anytime they were asked about these things that they had no interest Absolutely. in. Absolutely. Yeah. But I, I think that was an effort to sort of reframe the conversation to make it seem like they're not this advertising and the crackdown that's coming on password sharing are not some grand capitulations, but sort of every part of their narrative has been to do something that's dramatically different and then after it works, say, oh, that wasn't dramatically different. It was just the natural evolution of our business. And so it's advertising and password sharing now. You know, I think there's certainly a world in which they are more interested in live sports down the line when you have advertising, when you're already experimenting around live a live stand-up comedy concert. They can say it's just for stand-up now, but they have to have in the back of their mind that they're interested in sports. It's totally possible that they change their mind on movie theaters because they get to a point with the kind of number of big titles that they realize that making a little extra money that way would benefit them. Maybe not. Movie theaters is putting their big movies into movie theaters for some extended period Correct. instead of just the one week that they did with Knives Out 2. I think there's a bunch of those things. And look, you know, they've never done large scale M&A there. They are buying a bunch of studios to build up the gaming business you mentioned. But I think it's totally possible down the line if one of these studios or one of these media companies becomes available at a really good price and Netflix's stock is high there. They try to buy it. They don't feel like a seller right now, but you can never rule that out. I just think there's a lot of they, they are they have to be open to everything. And so there's there's very little that could be announced with them in the next couple of years that would shock me. Microsoft wants to spend $79 billion, $79 billion to buy Activision. The government wants to stop that. If the government stops the deal, does Netflix say, oh, we'd like to buy Activision now. We'd like to be in the game business. Or does, or does Netflix say, the government has now just said that basically you cannot do major tech M&A full stop and they're not going to let us start. So we're not going to touch any of this stuff either. If the government successfully blocks Microsoft's acquisition of Activision, it chills large-scale M&A across media and tech, I'd think, for, for a while. Because there are a lot of people out there floating, well, would Microsoft buy Netflix next? Would Apple buy Disney? All these things. None of those deals can happen if, if the government is successful in blocking this. I don't know if, but I don't know if Netflix is big enough that the government would care Maybe they are, but you know Microsoft is is 
much, much, much bigger than Netflix. And Microsoft also is a major gaming distributor because of Xbox, and Activision is a major gaming supplier, and the government has historically been very wary of those deals. It's the same reason that at least they said that they tried to block the AT&T Time Warner deal. Those acquisitions strategically don't tend to make a lot of sense because if you are the Activision publisher, you want your games to be available on every platform. And so trying to limit them to Xbox is generally bad for that business. But it is something that the government tends to review. There's no issues like that with, with Netflix and Activision. To me, the bigger the bigger or as big issue is that would almost be a merger of equals. I mean, Netflix is bigger, but it's not that much bigger. And that would be hugely destabilizing to the business. And the the strategy under Reed Hastings and Ted Sarandos has tended to be has tended to pro- prioritize stability and culture and smaller deals where they they don't have to you know overhaul how how they operate. And I don't think that would be possible if they bought Activision. You did note, and and I thought it was kind of weird that it was in the middle of your story and that no one p- picked up on it that prior to the pandemic, Netflix was looking at Paramount which would have not been the same size deal, but would have been a big honking deal and, and, and symbolically a big deal for a streamer to buy what had, one, you know, one of the big broadcast networks, what, what used to be one of the dominant cable franchises. But they were interested specifically in the film and TV studio Paramount Pictures. They did, uh-huh. the, the reason that those conversations never went anywhere is because Sherry Redstone, uh, who controls Paramount, was never going to just sell the studio because then she'd be left with these cable networks that are in decline and a streaming service that doesn't yet make money. Um, and that's about it. I feel like we're in deja vu land because I, I remember, I'm sure I've said this on one of these podcasts. I mean, someone suggested the way you, you, you solve that problem is Netflix buys the whole thing and then you sell off the streaming service and the broadcast networks to a PE buyer because they're happy to deal with declining cash flow businesses. Right. But I'm not going to play amateur M&A any more than I already have. I had Jason Schreier, your coworker, on uh, last week to talk about video games. Really useful podcast. All People should go listen to that if they want to understand how gaming business works. But I just want to end here by, by bringing up the media side of gaming and asking you, I probably asked you before, why the big media conglomerates who clearly understand at this point that gaming is a big deal, that when their audiences aren't watching the stuff they're putting in movie theaters or on streaming, it's in large part because they're playing video games. It's a growing business. Why they haven't been able to figure out their own gaming strategy. Netflix has said gaming is important. That's now now part of their mantra. And everyone else just kind of ignores it and whistles or has little side projects like Brian Roberts at Comcast gave his kid the ability to like start a uh, an e-gaming uh, division or a team or something. Uh, but beyond that, very little. Do, do you think that ever changes? It has to at some point. I, I think whether that that results in a big media company building out a studio or merging with a gaming studio, it just feels like there's too much natural overlap. Uh, especially if you have companies that, because gaming is a very tech intensive process, but if you're a company that has a big animation division, that's also, or a big visual effects division like Disney, that's already a lot of technology. I mean, look, Disney tried and failed. um, And so I think that's why they would be one of the the obvious contenders. And that's why they haven't because they they couldn't do it. Warner Brothers has a, a small but lucrative gaming division. I think had Jason Kylar stuck around there, they would have built that out 
my assumption would be that under David Zaslav, that will not happen because it's just not going to be a top priority and they don't have a lot. Seems more likely that it gets sold. And if you look across, you know, Apple and Amazon, who are at this point kind of major Hollywood suppliers, are also experimenting in gaming. And so I think you'll see, you know, if if moving forward, especially because most people expect there to be more consolidation, you look at, say, Netflix, Disney, Apple, Amazon, uh, and some combo of Warner Brothers Discovery, NBC Universal, Paramount as like the big six or big five or whatever it is, the majority of those will have some kind of gaming business uh, or already do. And so it's just a question of how ambitious they get with it. Many speed round to end the year. Um, growing chorus of calls for someone in government to do something about TikTok. Will TikTok at the end of next year, at the end of 2023, be operating the same way it is in the U.S. that it is right now? Or is there some change, some meaningful change coming? There will be some agreement with the federal government. I don't know how meaningful it will change the service. My assumption would be that it won't be that significant just because the federal government generally isn't that savvy when it comes to these tech things. And they'll get like some win that they can sell to voters that that doesn't transform TikTok's business. Will there be major M&A next year? I think mid-tier M&A. My current prediction, not that it means anything, is that you'll see M&A involving companies in like the one to 10 billion range. So that's like Lionsgate, which has been trying to sell itself forever, AMC Networks, which is in a really crappy situation, or a movie theater chain that's one of which is already going through a bankruptcy proceeding. But that the really big ticket items, the Paramount's Warner Brothers Discovery, NBC Universal, are probably more of a 2024 situation. Last question of the year for Lucas Shaw. What's your favorite thing you consumed this year? First thought best. Um, so I just did this because for my my newsletter, after uh, the top, I'm going to have like a best top 10 list for all these different categories. They were not in order, but I will give you three or four random thoughts. The album that I felt like I revisited the most, although Spotify didn't agree with me, was by this R&B singer, Amber Mark. And every time I listen to her music, it makes me happy. Probably the most fun concert I went to this year was Dua Lipa. And the movie experience where I laughed the hardest was Jackass Forever. God. Okay. Um, <laughs> the, the ex- with the, no, no, no. It wasn't, it, wasn't, it wasn't a judgment. I'm saying, with the exception of seeing clips of Dua Lipa Lip syncing on TikTok. Um, I have consumed none of. Well, it, so in I'm fairness, Amber Mark is list. a very small act, but okay. uh, I'm a big fan. And yeah, Dua is Dua. Uh, I had some. I, I went to a lot of really good live music this year. I was part of that trend. I probably went to like 20 plus shows this year. Holy cow! The average is like two. Yeah. Well, I also per person will have seen three movies in theaters this week. So. You're an anomaly. Uh, I always enjoy talking to you. Thanks for doing this yet again, Lucas Shaw. Thanks, Peter. Thanks again to Lucas Shaw. There's a reason I have him on this podcast all the time. It's because he's great. You know who else is great? Jelani and Travis. They produce and edit the show. Also great. Advertisers. You got it. They're also great because they bring the show to you for free. And you, the person who's listening to this, you're also great. Great job. Um, this is Recode Media. We will have the last episode of the year. It's our mailbag special uh, next week. We'll see you then.